Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. I'm Keith Mancone. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about one government program with quite a bit of history to it. Now, its official name describes it pretty well. It's called the Overseas Compatriot Youth Summer Formosa Study Tour to Taiwan. Bit of a mouthful, but yeah, that basically covers it. It was a, a summer camp for youth of Taiwanese descent living overseas. You know, uh, basically a way for second-generation immigrants uh, in the U.S. or in Europe uh, to get back in touch with their roots. You know, with language and culture classes, all that stuff. The program went by another name, though, a little bit shorter. Most folks know it as the Love Boat. You know, and it got that name. Even though the campus was on land and no boats were involved, uh, but the reason folks call it the love boat is, well, you know, a whole bunch of young people, limited supervision, away from home for the first time, went about the way you'd expect, and the program gained a bit of a reputation as a place for these young people to find love. Let's leave it at that. The program ran from the 1960s all the way up to 2013. And with decades of history, the Love Boat has some stories to tell. Well, one filmmaker is working to tell them with a documentary film about the program. Filmmaker is Valerie So, who is also a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University and a former participant in the Love Boat. She actually just arrived in Taiwan to get some filming done, and I managed to meet up with her at a local coffee shop in Taipei to talk about the film. Busy filmmaker, only spot we could find on short notice. So uh, excuse the background noise. Anyway, very interesting conversation. Here it is. Valerie So, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So this is a project that you've been thinking about for a while now. Uh, you've been working on it for about three years. You've already done uh, a number of interviews. So let's just start at the very beginning. Uh, what got you interested uh, in this topic uh, originally? I mean, beyond the fact that you were involved in this program yourself, uh, w- w- what made you think that this is something uh, that hasn't really been explored enough yet? Well, you know, like you said, I did go on the project when I was in, in college, and I, I knew at the time when I went, a lot of people my age would go. It was kind of like a rite of passage for a lot of my friends, Chinese-American and Taiwanese-American friends. And then I think even after I went, I went in the 80s, which is when I was in college. In the 90s, the program just blew up. It became huge. Like, I think, I believe, like, something like 1,200 people would go every year for six weeks. And um, that continued probably through most of the decade. Um, so I really thought it was interesting because it is a really well-known cultural phenomenon if you're Chinese-American or Taiwanese-American. But for people who are not either of those, it's maybe something you don't know about. So to me, like the dichotomy between something that is so well-known among a certain constituency and then not well-known at all in the general public was really interesting to me. And let's just uh, kind of lay out the nuts and bolts of what you're going to be up to uh, for the next uh, couple of months uh, what, what are you going to be spending your time on you know, in Taiwan? Uh, you're, you're on a Fulbright uh, scholarship right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a Fulbright fellowship, and I also have a fellowship from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Taiwan called the Taiwan Fellowship. So it's great. So I have both of these things that are helping me out. You're a double fellow? I'm double fellowing. <laughs> Is that allowed? Shh. Apparently so. All right. I'll, we'll, we'll only broadcast this quietly. They won't hear. <laughs> yeah, I think it's okay. They both know about each other. They're cool with it. 
And so you're basically going to be going around looking for people involved in this program and uh, getting their experiences this summer. Yeah, I have some people I already know here in Taiwan who have been either, you know, it's interesting, there's sort of like, a, there's people who worked on the program from Taiwan, like counselors and so forth, who are Taiwanese, right? And then there are also people from the North America, who North America, people from North America who went on the program went back home to Canada or the U.S. or wherever, and then they, they liked it so much in Asia that they have then since then moved back. So there's a bunch of those people here in Taiwan, like expats, right? And their first exposure, their first positive exposure to Taiwan was going on the love boat. And so I'm talking to some of those people. And then I'm also trying to find, uh, it was a government-sponsored program, so I'm also trying to find government officials who were involved in organizing it and planning it, you know, dreaming it up if I can find those people from way back then and just figuring out what the motivation was why did they have this program for so long sponsored by the government right and uh, actually let's I mean we know a little bit about that so maybe we can talk about that right now uh, of course love boat was the unofficial name I mean there was more official purposes behind it uh, more legitimate pers- uh, purposes behind it. Uh, and in you know your promotional material, you kind of break it up into three different groups. You've got the government, and they're in it for their own reasons. Uh, you've got the parents, they're kind of in it for their own reasons. And you've got the students who are in it for entirely different reasons. So uh, maybe you could break that up for us a little bit and just tell us what we know right now about those three groups. Sure, yeah. The, so, okay, starting with the government. So, of course, Taiwan's history is very complicated, right? The ROC has this very complicated relationship with China, with the U.S., with itself. And so, um, originally, as I understand it, the program was developed in the 1960s by the KMT, which was, you know, still in martial law at that point, to try to get support among diasporic Taiwanese and Chinese to support the ROC, especially after the ROC was kicked to the curb by the UN in the 70s. So the term we would use for that now is probably soft power, something along those lines. It is totally a soft power program and a very successful soft power program because it's been going on, it went on for, you know, 45 years and people have moved back here, you know, and love Taiwan. Um, Okay, so that's the government part, right? And so, you know, when I was there, it it was very much about pushing the KMT agenda. Nowadays, I'm not sure, quite sure if it's that much about that. It's more about economic uh, support as opposed to political support. But it's still, you know, about support, right? So the second part, of course, is the parents. So a lot of uh, Chinese Americans and Chinese American parents uh, moved to the U.S. because, of course, they thought of the American dream. They thought it was a great place to grow up and, you know, to raise kids and to have them grow up because of whatever reasons. But what they found was that a lot of those kids then decided to completely assimilate and they would not then marry other Taiwanese or Chinese Americans. So a lot of the parents decided they would send their their college-age kids on this program to then meet other cute and attractive college-age Taiwanese and Chinese Americans and then hopefully marry them. Yeah, and I mean, some of the accounts that I read, the parents are pretty explicit that, you know, they, they were being a little bit crafty. Uh, and, and some of them were even kind of putting one over on their kids and, and not fully telling their kids uh, exactly what this program was going to be about. Right. It was a, a officially advertised as a place where you would learn to speak Mandarin. You know, you'd learn martial arts or brush painting or a little bit about Chinese history. Or you'd vis- visit the National Museum and go visit, you know, all these other shrines and temples and stuff. But I'm pretty sure the parents knew that it was also about 20-year-olds together on a bus for six weeks. Doesn't take a lot to put that together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but then, of course, the kids then eventually figure that out too and they were fine with that because of course if you're 20 years old or 17 year old years old or however you are and you got to spend 
four to six weeks in a foreign country completely paid for by the government and your parents and you had free reign you could go out and you know hang out and go to nightclubs at night or the night market or whatever you wanted to do um, then it was worth it for the kids to have to wake up and take a few Mandarin lessons and you know do a little bit of brush painting because they knew that they also had Taipei at their feet right. and it was just so fun for them and so now it's often, you know, discussed as a joke, uh, this thing. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it does seem like in a lot of ways uh, it kind of had the intended results uh, for uh, both of these groups, both the government and these parents, because, you know, uh, in a lot of it, as you've already said, you know, there are a, a ton of kids that decided, you know what, this is actually a pretty cool place to live. I want to live here. I want to put my work into this place, make it better. Uh, and then for the parents, you know, some of that love did happen. So, uh, I mean, in, in some ways, uh, mission accomplished, right? Yeah, it was actually really, really effective in a lot of ways. Um, since I started the crowdfunding campaign about a month or two ago, I mean, at least a dozen people have written to me from all time periods, from the 70s up until like five or six years ago, saying, you know, I met my husband, I met my wife on this trip, we have four kids. It worked out. I was from Iowa, I never knew any other Chinese people, and now I'm married to one, and yeah. Now, it's interesting because... Um, I think in, in a way the government was really trying to kind of uh, up the national identity of people from Taiwan, people from the ROC. Um, but there's another way to look at it because, you know, a lot of these kids, I think the bulk of the kids uh, are, are, are from the U.S. And you read some of these accounts and it's not so much their specifically Taiwanese or ROC identity that got upped, but more the sense that, you know, they're part of a very specific uh, Asian American experience uh, and you know as you said a lot of them uh, before had never really considered dating an Asian or marrying an Asian or getting involved in Asian culture uh, but that definitely coalescing of that kind of uh, view or identity does seem to be kind of a product of this yeah I think so I mean in the U.S., you know, I think there's sort of a lot. I like mixing and matching of Asian, different Asian cultures. Like, there'll be like a, you know, you'll be into K-pop or something and also like boba or whatever. I mean, so it's not only just like you have to like stay in your lane as far as being Taiwanese or Korean or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's a little more pan-Asian there. So, uh, but there, you know, then there are some people who were really specifically into being like Taiwanese and thinking about like Taiwanese stuff. So, especially I think later on in the like late 90s and 2000s when that, Taiwanese identity started to formulate a little bit more as opposed to like Chinese or just ROC or whatever. But but do you think that it had like a, something of a lasting impact on uh, the you know Asian Americans just in terms of uh, thinking of themselves more as a group than before? Oh yeah, sure I think so. Yeah, I think it's just another way of uh, understanding the significance of, you know, the Asian cultural heritage. Yeah. So uh, as you, you know, continue uh, your work this summer, what kind of questions are you going to be asking? What are you going to be looking for uh, as you talk to all these people that were involved in this program? You know, I'm interested in both how the program changed individual people's lives, you know, or affected individual people's lives, but also then maybe also how the community at large was affected. You know, either Taiwanese community, Taiwanese American, Asian American, Chinese American, how that kind of had an effect on, you know, the broader cultural uh, community out there. So as well as individuals, you know, not only just like, oh, I met my husband or my wife and I married someone, right? Or I started to really like Asian guys or whatever. I think to me also I'm interested in that sort of, like you said, maybe like this kind of ripple effect or the way that it spread to a broader community sense in among Asian Americans and also among maybe even in Taiwan, right? Maybe, I don't know if the little boat had an impact among Taiwanese, maybe? I don't know. Well, some folks probably got spouses out of it, so that's, you know. 
Yeah, that's another thing, too, I think I'll be looking for when I go back after I'm done here in Taiwan is sort of the flip side of the expats who moved here is, like, were there people who worked, who were from Taiwan who became so interested in, like, U.S. culture? Did they move then to the U.S. or did they marry someone from the U.S.? You know, so it sort of goes both ways. Mm. I, without getting too personal with this question, I mean, uh, you were somebody who participated as well. I mean, let's just say in the broadest terms, uh, w- would you say that this had a, a reasonable impact on, on your life? Did, it, th- did this change anything for you, uh, being a part of the love boat? Yeah, I think so. Of course, you know, when you go on something when you're 20 years old, your mind is just wide open, right? And so it's just, I think at that point, it kind of just... Um Accentuated my interest in learning more about being Asian, being about Chinese, being Asian American, all of these these things. So, yeah, it definitely did make me more interested in what's going on over here. I mean, like a lot of people, I think, um, who are 20 years old and living in the U.S., I really didn't even know where Taiwan was or what it was about. So I think in some ways, yeah, the government was really smart about doing this because now I know where Taiwan is, right? And I know what it's about. Well, and I I guess now you're a a professor that studies all this stuff, so... Again, mission accomplished, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And especially nowadays, I think in Asian American studies, there's much more interest in sort of transnationalism, right? As opposed to only focusing on Asian American experiences in the U.S. Because there's so many more immigrants now in the U.S. The the Asian American community is all about immigrants at this point. Although, of course, now that's changing because those immigrants are having kids and they're coming of age. But so, you know, but even just the fact that now you have something like the Internet and you can go online and find all this information about things that are happening overseas, whereas... In the past, it was just so distant, you know, so far away, that uh, it was harder to focus on a lot of those issues. And now, it's, I think a lot of people's consciousness are more global. Uh, and uh, so my understanding is that the, uh, the program uh, actually ended in, in 2013, but it's been a little bit replaced. I mean, where, where, where does it stand at this point? It's very amorphous. I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, I mean, officially, I think they say that it ended in 2013, but there are there are programs that are similar to it. So I'm, I have a person coming over who is going on one of those programs that's sponsored by the OCAC, which doesn't stand for what it used to stand for. It used to stand for the Overseas Chinese something, and now it's something else. Yeah, the Overseas Compatriot Affairs Commission. Yes, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> but when I was growing, you know, when I was on the trip it was overseas Chinese something <laughs> <laughs> I can tell that uh, you, you, you took all those lessons to heart definitely yeah absolutely a lot of learning back then but anyway so yeah but you know so he's going on this trip it's only it's much shorter the one he's going on is only three weeks and there's many few, fewer people I think I think 100 or 150 people and I think that they don't want it to be called the love boat <laughs> for whatever reasons I, we, we, we can imagine the reasons. Yeah. And also, you know, the OCAC and the CYC, the China Youth Corps, have diversified a lot of their youth programs now for overseas Chinese. So, they, for instance, they've got something called the Taiwan Tech Trek, where you intern with technology companies. Um, they've got another program where students go teach English to rural communities. So they have kind of split off a lot of these little programs. Um, yeah, so one of the questions I'm going to be asking this summer is what exactly is the form of this program now, and does it still exist um, as we know it in the sort of the classic love boat sense, or is it really completely different from what the program used to be, uh, or will it change into something else? 
Right, and you know, just kind of sticking with that theme of uh, transition and, 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 and how these outlooks are changing, I mean, the motivation behind this program has kind of come into question over the years, especially when you know the Chen Shui-bin uh, administration came in and the idea of uh, promoting an ROC identity became less palatable. Uh, now that we're in a new DPP regime, uh, and, well, just in general, I mean, maybe maybe we're getting to a point in the Taiwanese consciousness where there's uh, less of an em- emphasis on, uh, you know, the racial ident- identity or the ethnic identity, the Zhonghua Minzu. Could this, you know, be- become somewhat stripped of that and become really just a, a, a purely, hey, world, look at us kind of thing, and there's good stuff going on over here? Or, or, or are we not, is that not quite the moment we're in? I think that, I think what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is how the DPP is going to use the program because it was, you know, strictly a KMT thing for a long time. And the KMT had a definite agenda that they they were focused on, right? And so how I think that the DPP maybe will realize that they can use the program in a different way for their own agenda. And so that's going to be interesting. Like next year might be a really interesting year to see what happens, you know, once they're sort of the, they've settled in a bit and they can figure out how they can make this work to their in their favor. Now, you actually come here uh, with a, a pretty interesting perspective, being somebody who's, who studies, uh, you know, Asian-American uh, issues and Asian-American identity. What, what, what can you tell us about uh, the way that young Asian-Americans, especially, you know, Taiwanese-Americans, uh, would view a program like this? I mean, it, it, has that changed at all over the years? I think it's changed a lot because I think, like I said, in the Everybody I've talked to that went on the program since, I'd say, the late 90s and through the 2000s pretty much identifies as Taiwanese-American and not Chinese-American. Whereas when I went, you know, back in the 80s, it was the same thing. Chinese meant Taiwanese. There was no Taiwanese-American. And so, of course, there was a big push in the U.S. at the last census by the Taiwanese-American community to get that box. There was a write-in campaign where people wrote in Taiwanese-American, right? You did not write in Chinese-American. You didn't check the Chinese-American box. So, so yeah, there's really a strong sense of people trying to define that identity separate from Chinese-American. And and would you say that uh, there would be a hunger at this point, I mean, uh, among uh, kids in the U.S. to get in touch with specifically Taiwanese culture rather than, I mean, I think that, you know, in the 80s, it would have been, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, Chinese history, calligraphy, that kind of stuff, which is uh, not necessarily the same set of uh, issues that a DPP administration would want to promote. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I think, as far as I can tell, the kids that who I've talked to are really interested in the, the Taiwanese-American or the Taiwanese identity uh, you know, in Taiwan. And, you know, that doesn't mean that there won't be aspects of Chinese culture, too. But they're thinking also about things that are more specifically related to Taiwan, separate from the PRC. And and, and let's just update the, the other interest group that we've already identified here, the parents. I mean, do you think that there still is, uh, we, we, we haven't even used the word bloodline, but that really is what we're talking about here, the uh, the, the family bloodline, keeping it in the family. Um, do you think that there still is an interest in that, in uh, having the youngins uh, find a Taiwanese spouse? I think there might be, although, you know, nowadays there's less of the outmarriage rates are going down in the Asian American community. So people, and partially just because there's more Asians living in the U.S. than there used to be, right? So you can't, there's more targets, you know, there's more opportunities, there's more people you can date. 
Right, so it's not so isolated as, as it used to be. I mean, since 1970, I think the number of Asian Americans has gone from something like 0.4% in the U.S. to more, almost 6%. So like more than a 10 times, more than 10 times as many Asian Americans in the U.S. now. And, so, and that's only growing. That's increasing. Like it's supposed to, Asian Americans are supposed to be the fastest growing demographic in the U.S., so it might be less pressing for those parents to send their kids all the way to Taiwan just to find someone to marry. So I guess the sense that I'm getting in talking to you that uh, this, you know, looking really at the motivations and, and, and why people joined in this program and what they got out of it, this is really a way of clarifying a lot of stuff about, you know, uh, Asian Americans. European Americans also are... <laughs> Uh, Asian Europeans also took part in this, uh, and, and and so it's it's really a, a way to get a sense of uh, how a whole lot of people, you know, think about uh, their place in their home country, their place in the country uh, that their family is from. Uh, so there's you know, uh, clarifying what this program is about uh, touches on all that stuff. Yeah, and it changes from year to year, and definitely from decade to decade. You know, I mean, everything. Everybody who I've talked to has had a certain perspective about what makes why they went and why their parents wanted them to go and what they expected. I mean, you know, there's some constants like going out to clubs, you know, or whatever. But um, yeah, it's interesting to me how much has changed. Uh, so, so another topic you could delve into is you could let us know if the clubs have gotten better or worse than they were in the '80s. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Yeah, the coffee's gotten better. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, uh, just to wrap things up, uh, if you could uh, give us a little bit of information uh, for how our listeners could get involved. I understand that, of course, uh, you know, uh, independent film projects like this is always looking for support. Uh, but then even beyond that, uh, you're also looking for uh, more people who could be interviewed as you go through this project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm here in Taiwan. I have certain people that I'm going to talk to, but if there's anybody else who is in, has been involved with the program that I'm not in touch with, of course, I'd love to hear from them. Um, and yeah, it is entirely financed independently, so uh, we're always looking for contributions. We had a crowdfunding campaign about a month ago, and which was pretty successful, but you know, the, we always need more money. Filmmaking is a very, very expensive addiction. Right. Well, uh, luckily, there's a, a lot of helpful people around here that uh, hopefully will be helping you out. Uh, and there's a Facebook page as well where people can learn more? Yes, there is. You can just go to Love Boat Taiwan. Or you can search my name, and I also have a, a page that you can find information about. All right. Well, uh, the name of the film, once again, is Love Boat Taiwan. We have been speaking to its director, Valerie So. Valerie, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Love. Exciting and new. Come aboard. We're expecting you. Love boat. Gotta love it. All right, uh, well, we're going to have to sign off in just a second from Taiwan Talk. But before I go, uh, I want to give a very quick plug to a useful page covering Taiwan news. Uh, this is a page on Facebook run by Klaus Bardenhagen. Uh, he is a freelance journalist from Germany working in Taiwan, covering lots of uh, issues on Taiwanese politics and culture and current events. Uh, and his page is called Taiwan Reporter. He updates it all the time with very useful info and links to articles, uh, all related to Taiwan. So uh, anybody who's interested in learning more about what's happening here, very useful resource. I'll be posting there as well. Anyway, got to wrap things up. So for ICRT and Taiwan Talk, 
I'm Keith Minconi. Thanks for listening. On a friendly show.